relationships, that's a big word and it's a big concept, right? And some people will say, well, you have to understand where people are coming from deep inside. And if you are able to do that, God bless you. That is a gift from God, right? If you are not a licensed therapist or a pastor or somebody's best friend, and you're able to look inside their heart, understand what makes them tick, connect with them on a deep level, right? That is, that's a profound thing. Uh, But so many people at work, we have to rely on each other just to get stuff done. Right. That 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 before I can do B, C and D, I need to get A from you. Right. And then you need to get E, F and G. And then someone else needs to do H, I and J. And then we're going to come. Right. We're working interdependently. We're relying on each other. Right. And if you want to be able to rely on other people, you've got to be one of those people upon whom other people can rely. That's Bruce Tolgan founder of the management training firm Rainmaker Thinking and the best-selling author of books like The Art of Being Indispensable at Work and It's Okay to Be the Boss. To succeed in today's increasingly demanding and uncertain world of work, Bruce shares that your connection with people and the value you bring to them is key to helping you move forward. The funny thing is, this, the more you are, if you want to be valuable, if you want to get ahead, you've got to add value to others. So the way you have to orient yourself to relationships is, sure, you want to bond with people. Okay. You know, I feel your pain, whatever it is. And you, of course, you want to be able to go to people when you need something. But the key to relationships at work is, and, and maybe relationships in life, is approach every relationship in terms of what you can do for them. How do you become indispensable and deliver real influence? What does it even mean to be indispensable in this new world of work? And what can hold us back from being that important go-to person? Welcome to Strategic Momentum. I'm your host, Connie Steele. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation with prolific author and renowned management trainer, Bruce Tolgan. Bruce has been one of the leading experts in management for decades now, working with some of the largest organizations in the world to create data-driven systems and practices that nurture more cohesive organizations and created Rainmaker Learning to help individuals develop their relationship management skills. He's learned a lot about the skills required to succeed, and he has some thoughts about what skills would be necessary if you want to be indispensable in a post-pandemic world. Thank you so much, Bruce, for being on the show today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So it'd be great if you could share your career journey and those important milestones that have led you to where you are today. Well, gosh, um, I'm going to consider this appearance on your show to be my latest milestone. And um, uh, I started doing this work on work um, almost 30 years ago. I was an unhappy lawyer at number two Wall Street, New York City, at a corporate law firm. And uh, I ended up writing a book called Managing Generation X. And it was the early 90s. You know, that book uh, hit the world like a freight train. And all of a sudden, there were more news stories about that book than the number of books that had been sold. And uh, so I thought, golly, I guess I don't have to be a lawyer anymore. And um you're an early pivoter. Indeed. Yeah. I was only, I only practiced law for 428 days as it turned out. And then, uh, 
You know, when the book came out, um, what happened actually, there was a review in the Christian Science Monitor and someone in Jack Welch's office saw it and brought it to his attention. And so the very first call I got from a business leader was, you know, we're calling from Jack Welch's office at GE. It's amazing. Mr. Welch would like you to come speak to his leadership team. And uh, I was like, well, gosh, um, you mean like Jack Welch? (laughs) (laughs) And so they, they said, well, what's your fee? And I said, my fee. And, you know, so anyway, that's how it started. And then, you know, there was a, uh, an AP Wire story about managing Generation X about my first book that ran in like 700 newspapers. And it was just a very short um, little squib about the book, but it ran in a whole lot of newspapers. And, you know, it was it was early days. So people were worried about Generation X and they were afraid of Generation X. And they were like, you know, uh, I understand there's this new thing called the Internet and that they're going to be magical business models that don't require services and products. And we have to put a foosball table in every teaming space, you know. And uh, so I was just going around and none of my clients were young upstart companies, all of my first clients were GE, the YMCA, the United States Army, Anheuser-Busch, Deloitte Consulting. You know, it was all these old-fashioned organizations uh, that were worried about these new young workers. And uh, so that's how we got rolling, you know, and what happened is uh, uh People would call us and say, um, uh, do you, can you speak about this? And I'd say, hmm, well, I don't know. And, you know, everything I do is based on interviews. So I would do 100 interviews and then we'd do another article or a white paper or often they would turn into books. And so, you know, by the late 90s, we had interviewed tens of thousands of people. Um, I think I was working on my fourth book or something by then. And uh, it just took off from there. Uh, I did a book in 2001 called Winning the Talent Wars. Somewhere along the way, we did Fast Feedback. In 2004, we did a white paper called The Undermanagement Epidemic. Which still exists. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And that, and that led to my book, It's Okay to Be the Boss. The first chapter of that book is Fight the Undermanagement Epidemic. Uh, and then, you know, along came the millennials and I wrote a book called Not Everyone Gets a Trophy about them. And uh, so over the years, we've interviewed more than half a million people from more than 400 organizations. Our number one client has been the United States Armed Forces and the United States Intelligence Community. And we've worked with lots and lots of organizations. I always say ranging from Aetna to Walmart and everyone in between. And um you know, 21 books, a bunch of white papers, and uh, mostly what we do still is the same thing. We do in-depth interviews, but we do them as organizational assessments. And uh, uh, I write books when the data sort of bubbles up so that it's a new topic, or I think, hmm, maybe this could be a book. And, uh, uh, you know, we have our own podcast now, and we're always doing uh, seminars and uh, you know, folks call me and ask me for advice, which I guess is called consulting. <laughs> so that's the story of my life, Con. 
You know, what I find so interesting, and it's actually quite reflective of certain things are happening to people now where you have a passion or you've highlighted a need, not expecting that to turn into potentially your professional path, but you have been sharing the voice of the workforce before people probably didn't realize that was an important thing to do is to reflect these needs, motivations, wants, perspectives in order to help bridge that gap in understanding because all businesses are in the business of people. And I think that now where you see this shift where people are realizing, well, yes, we need to pay attention to people. You've been doing this for so long, but it wasn't anything that was planned. It was kind of born out of your own experiences and seeing this need. And and you're seeing this with so many other younger people today who are recognizing, you know what? What I'm doing right now doesn't fit, but I have I have an interest and a passion. I need to write or or produce or create something that lets me channel that. Yeah, and I'm not sure I was following my passion. I mean, my passion is uh, my wife, my family, um, my now my dog. You know, uh, karate is a passion of mine. Um, uh, what what um, I was working as a lawyer and uh, one of the senior partners said, oh, you young lawyers, you Gen Xers, you're a bunch of slackers. And I said to him, you know, if you only knew what the young lawyers were whispering about over lunch and he got really curious, he said, what, 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 what are they whispering about over lunch? And so the reason I started interviewing people is I thought, well, I'm going to write an article called what your young employees are whispering about over lunch. It just, it turned into a book and then the book hit a nerve. So um, it, it, there was a lot of serendipity in, in the early uh, stages of, of, of my working life and career. And I guess uh, a lot of, you know, uh, I just, you know, it took some guts to quit my job at the law firm, I guess. Um, my parents thought I was insane, uh, but, um, you know, then it, it, it has turned into a career, I guess. Well, but your story, again, you're kind of this pioneer, as I see it, because you are seeing quite a bit of this now in this sort of new world of work. And certainly we've experienced incredible change over the last few years, which has impacted the dynamics of work, right? From where we work to how we work, what we want out of it. And as someone who's been an expert on workforce management and the generational mix in the workplace, I'd love to hear your perspective on the future of work now uh, and and what's needed to navigate the constantly shifting sands well look i mean there's some issues that are as old as the hills you know long before me studs turkle wrote the very famous book working um and in fact one of the early reviews of my first book was this is like a studs turkle for generation x you know and um so you know, all I do is interview people. And, but to your point, we've now been doing this for a long time. We've got a lot of data. A lot of the interviews are longitudinal interviews. Um, and also to your point earlier, I think in the last three years, my sort of, you know, back of the envelope, uh, guesstimate is we've done about 30 years of trend acceleration in the last three years. And so it is no longer the case that having a certain body in a certain place during certain hours um, is uh, the centerpiece of a job. Uh, And for a long time, we were tracking uh, 
flexibility in schedule, flexibility in work location, and uh, that this was a big issue for uh, workers of all ages. You know, Gen Xers might have been the first ones to say, hey, I don't see why I need to come to your office um, back in the 90s. But uh, uh, but people of all ages have been more and more saying, I'm pretty sure I could do this at home. And then I wouldn't get interrupted all day long by people poking their head into my workspace um, and, and taking up my time talking about, you know, the, the, the game I didn't watch last night and, um, you know, or whatever else they want to shoot the breeze about. And um, so I think, you know, the biggest change in the last three years has been kind of a a spike in everybody's empathy quotient, um, uh, kind of a spike in our recognition of everybody's humanity, maybe a greater sensitivity to the humanness of, of, of workers. Um, and, and then from a trend standpoint, uh, the big acceleration is in freeing a lot of work from a particular place during certain hours which is tremendous uh, increase in flexibility, convenience, and comfort for employees. Uh, although a lot of employers are now pushing back and trying to pull people back to the office, my view is many of them are making a huge strategic error. And you know, funny enough, I have plenty of CEOs who say to me, um, "Yeah, we spent X amount on this long-term lease, and now I'm trying to disentangle." Uh, our lease obligations and lower our uh, uh, real estate footprint. Uh, they're also realizing that they can access talent uh, without it being particularly located in, in a specific geography. Uh, there are all kinds of advantages to business leaders um, uh, if, they're, if they're able to see them and if they're able to maintain organizational culture and connectivity between and among uh, uh, coworkers. Um, but uh, but I see the biggest change um, over the last few years as one of uh, empathy, sympathy for each other, a recognition of human needs, uh, and then a, a, a disruption in the place and time requirements. Uh, the, the other changes are, are macro in nature and have been uh, have been progressing for the last couple of decades. Well, I totally agree. And that some of this shift in getting to the flexibility aspect of it is something that everyone has always wanted. What that looks like, the how of it may be sort of interpreted a bit differently. But certainly, as we know that you talk about generations, it's something that I've studied quite a bit, too. But with those two, the two youngest generations have already inherently understood that they can work from anywhere and still be effective. And that I had seen as a ongoing movement that was eventually going to happen. The pandemic obviously accelerated that, but you already had a pretty large cohort of workers who were going to be reflecting the future, who believed that the effectiveness of their work really could be done anywhere, anytime, any place. But I think the other piece that you um, had brought up uh, that so resonated with me is that the empathy, sort of the human nature of work has come to the forefront. And what I like to talk about is that we've now had to look at the future of work and life, as I like to call it. It's about fluidity. It's about being more human-centered at the end of the day, because no matter what kind of technology we have, and certainly over the past 20 years, we've seen technology accelerate so much, but we also have found that it's burned people out, that 
at the end of the day, there's still people who are powering businesses and there's a greater recognition of the humanness that we need to fuse back into it. And one of the things you talked about, right? That this, the empathy piece of it, sort of the, the soft skills I'd like to focus on, right? What do you feel is particularly important for workers to focus on from a skills perspective? And I would even say soft skills, because we're certainly seeing more and more discussion about that, people prioritizing soft skills, given that, you know, in a, in a remote world or a hybrid world, there are different dynamics. And I know even in your book. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, of course, it's the case that you have to build technical skills and keep them up to date. Um, I define technical skills as the knowledge and technique necessary to execute on basic tasks, responsibilities, and projects, right? So you have to know how to do the job, whether it's running a cash register uh, or you know running a nuclear power plant. It's it's you have to know how to do that. That's a technical skill, um, but uh, there's a growing gap in the soft skills, in the broad transferable skills, the areas where you know maybe they're a little harder to define, uh, but they're so important. Um, things that if you ask people, hey, does this matter? People, oh, yeah, that really matters. Oh, how do you teach that? Oh, it's, it's pretty hard to teach. Well, how do you manage it? Well, you can't really manage it. Well, no, you have to be able to teach it and you have to be able to manage it. And so our research points to 12 missing basics that are in growing demand, but also in diminishing supply in the labor market. Uh, that how employees are showing up uh, either in a particular location at a particular time or virtually is reflecting a gap in what uh, coworkers and managers and employers uh, writ large want in workers. And so uh, they, these 12 missing basics fall into the categories of professionalism, critical thinking, teamwork, um, and, uh, like I said, you know, our research, we've we had more than a half a million people from more than 400 organizations over almost 30 years now. Um, so that's, that's the only basis for this, uh, uh, for these 12 missing basics. Uh, but you know, it's, it is rooted in, in research. And, um, when I talk about these missing basics, uh, boy, I get a lot of people nodding their heads and a lot of people feel like. They're intangible and they're hard to define. They're hard to teach. They're hard to manage. One of the things we try to do is make them more tangible so that they can be taught and managed. Well, I know one of the ways you've been able to share that is through your latest book, because one of the things you you talk about, which is called The Art of Being Indispensable, When Influence Beat Over Commitment and Get the Right Things Done. One of those key things that I loved is that you, know, you talk about how uh, people in this new hybrid world, everyone, or even whether you are, you're in person or not, but you want to be indispensable. You know, your value is being indispensable. And that is kind of this overarching skill to develop, but there's so many different elements to that. And so I'd love for you to talk, tell us a bit more about this book and the inspiration behind writing it in the first place, because in particular, you're seeing data out there that people who are remote 
are more worried about potentially being let go. So in this case, I think your book is so relevant because regardless of where you may be, if you're indispensable, you're indispensable. I mean, sorry, not if you're not. So so that's key. That's right. And indispensable is in the eye of the beholder. Listen, I I, got to come clean. If a CEO says to me, hey, this person over here is indispensable to my organization or to my team for that matter, uh, my first thought is that's a business problem that needs to be solved, right? If somebody's indispensable, that's a risk to the business. Uh, but what what I mean by indispensable in this book is, are you the kind of person who uh, whom other people want to work with, right? Are you the kind of person other people want you who want to work with them? Right? Are you the kind of person who, who, who is a go-to person? Right? Everyone wants to go to you, and often that is because uh, you have some particular technical ability, skill, wisdom. There's something you know how to do that nobody else knows how to do. But it turns out that even if you're the greatest technical wizard, if you're difficult, if you're uh, have a bad if if your attitude is 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 um, obnoxious um, if you uh, uh, don't deliver on your commitments uh, if you don't take commitments seriously uh, if you ask things of people in a way that's um, aggressive or uh, pushy or bullying uh, or inconsiderate uh, if you know how you conduct yourself matters. And uh, when one of the things we do in our research is, so we'll go into an organization and I'll say to people, hey, tell me about your go-to people, you know, and tell me about your not go-to people. And, and sometimes I'll say, hey, if, 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 um, if you could only have three people show up to work for the next week, who would it be and why? Right. And, and, and sure, it's somebody who can do a lot of heavy lifting. Sure. It's somebody who has critical skills. But uh, over and over and over again, the common denominators of who are my go-to people, who would I want to show up if no one else could, uh, it has to do with how they show up and how they conduct themselves, how they treat people, uh, how they ask for help, how they make commitments, how they deal with problems, uh, how they deal uh, with gaps in, uh, uh, in productivity, gaps in quality. Uh, how do they treat people? Very much relationships, right? So this gets back to the soft skills, which is so important. Absolutely. And so what we look at is the, the, the interesting thing is, look, let's assume you're an A player. Let's assume you're good at your job and let's assume, you know, you got a pretty good attitude and let's assume you want to be helpful. Let's assume you're a self-starting high performer who has a pretty good attitude. What, what our research shows is what gets in the way for self-starting high performers who are good at their job and have a pretty good attitude. Here's what gets in their way. They get overcommitted. They, they say yes to everyone or they say yes in the wrong ways, at the wrong times. They put themselves in a position where they're always juggling, they're always overcommitted, where they end up dropping the ball and letting people down, 
where they get frustrated. And so there are unnecessary problems and unnecessary relationship friction. So the irony is, I mean, look, if you look at a bunch of people who aren't good at their jobs, teach them how to do their jobs. You look at somebody who's got a bad attitude, you know, you know explain to them that a good attitude is required and then hold them accountable for that. Um, you know, if somebody doesn't know how to have good interpersonal skills, teach them how. If somebody's unprofessional in another way, show them how. If somebody doesn't know how to make decisions, you can probably teach them. But what we're interested in is self-starting high performers who are already good at their job and already have a good attitude. What gets in their way? And nine out of 10 problems that afflict self-starting high performers come from overcommitment syndrome. And overcommitment syndrome is this problem that hides in plain sight in most, uh, in most high performers, uh, uh, reality. And it leads to unnecessary problems and unnecessary relationship friction. And sometimes those spin out of control. One of those things that I know I've personally experienced feeling like, okay, how do you manage all of these commitments? Because you want to be helpful. You want to support people. And you don't always know how to say no. You don't know how to manage necessarily. Maybe it's up, maybe it's down, maybe it's across, but this all still gets back to how do you develop the right relational skills as well to manage those certain situations where you know you can't overcommit, but you want to still be helpful. And one thing in your book, there was a comment in your book that really stuck out for me was to be that go-to person, that connection with people is key. In the uncertainty of the post-pandemic world, people will be our anchors, our relationship to one another, a source of strength and security. Be a go-to person and build up your network of go-to people you know you can rely on. And that really resonated because I think also as we move towards this new world of work and people are looking for a sense of belonging and connection, empathy being really key to building that, it's not easy. I think people struggle with that. So I'd love for you to also talk about too, about why it's about relationships fundamentally to help you manage that overcommitment syndrome, to help you manage the the dynamics that we have. Yeah. And, and, and of course, look, relationships, that's a big word and it's a big concept, right? And some people will say, well, you have to understand where people are coming from deep inside. And if you are able to do that, God bless you. That is a gift from God, right? If you are not a licensed therapist or a pastor or somebody's best friend, and you're able to look inside their heart, understand what makes them tick and connect with them on a deep level, right? That is, that's a profound thing. Uh, But so many people at work, we have to rely on each other just to get stuff done. Right. That, that, that before I can do B, C, and D, I need to get A from you. Right. And then you need to get E, F, and G. And then someone else needs to do H, I, and J. And then we're going to come, right. We're working interdependently. We're relying on each other. Right. And if you want to be able to rely on other people, you've got to be one of those people upon whom other people can rely. That's the go-toism that you talk about, right? <laughs> that is go-toism. And that means, uh, you know, at its heart, uh, know who you are and be someone who is committed to adding maximum value. Now, maximum value does not mean saying yes, yes, yes to everyone and everything. Maximum value means you know your yeses are gold. 
Your yeses are so valuable. You better not waste them. And so you take people's needs seriously. And when somebody asks you for help, pay attention, ask questions, treat their needs with respect, take notes, make sure you really understand. And, and that doesn't mean you say, oh, this thing that, hey, sorry, you're not my boss. Hey, sorry, that's not my job, right? Oh, hey, love to help you, but I can't. Right? <laughs> I'm not, nobody wants to be that person, right? But you have to be very careful not to waste your yeses. You've got to be intentional. You've got to take other people's needs seriously, and you've got to manage your own productive capacity with intelligence and integrity. And, you know, so many people are afraid that, oh, if I say no, then they'll go to someone else. If I say no, they'll think I'm uh, avoiding work. If I say no, they'll think I'm uncooperative. If I say no, they'll think I have a bad attitude, right? And uh, my view is you don't need to know how to say no. I mean, sure, you can say no politely with, with a sugar on top or whatever, but it's still no. Nobody wants to hear no. Um, you have to know when to say no. You have to be known for really intelligent no's with real integrity. That if you say no, and it's not no, get away from me. Right. It's, it's, right. It's, it's no. And here's why. And maybe I could help you in this other way, or maybe I can help you understand um, why to get a yes, you need to do A, B, and C first, or, hey, we're not actually allowed to do this, or I actually am not able to do this for one reason or another, or, you know, hey, actually, you know, I don't think we should do this. Maybe we should do this other thing instead. Um, and, and, and what you're really trying to do is remember, you've got 168 hours in a week, you sleep 56, and that leaves you 112 hours. Let's say you go to work sometimes you you know you 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 groom you've got a family so you got 90 hours a week to work you still don't have enough time right so you got to use that time really carefully to add maximum value and that means the trick is real learning how to say yes at the right times in the right ways so you're making commitments that put you in a position to add maximum value when you become known for your uh, 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 integrity in, um, in, in how you engage with other people around their needs, uh, then uh, people respect you for your professionalism and, uh, and they understand that when you say no, you're, you, it's a respectful no and it's because you're trying to help them get to a better yes. It's so interesting when you think of this, the relationships between how you um, interact with people and the things that you say to ensure that you become that go-to person, meaning that social power that you talked about, that real influence comes from that person who is somebody who focuses on getting the other person's needs met. So people can understand, oh yeah, well, of course I could do that. However, you have to think of that, but yet there's a prioritization that you have to take into account on when do you say yes? There's an art and science to it basically, right? It's not just like, oh, I just do this when I do this and I do this. It is 
It is, there's nuances and learning that can be really difficult, but this gets back to one of the points that you even had in the book. It's like, how do you really think about the real influence, the difference between real influence and false influence and knowing how to kind of lead effectively wherever you are to be able to put yourself in those positions where you're, you're delivering and delivering that maximum value. And so it is a yes. And they know this person's going to say yes, and they're going to be dependable versus the other kind of situation. They're saying yes, just because like, yeah, and I'm put off to the side. I always tell people, look, you know, influence is not a thing you do to people influence someone. If you're doing that, it's you're, you're doing it. You're doing the wrong kind of influence, right? If you're trying to get someone to do something for you, influence is a currency you build up over time by conducting yourself with intelligence and integrity, by doing the right things for the for 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 people at the right times in the right ways. When people know that when they come to you, you're going to listen to them. You're going to tune into them. You're going you're, you're gonna to say, hey, oh, that's my specialty. I know a lot about that. I know just how long that will take. I know just how to do it. I know just when I can do it for you. I know just what I need from you to deliver on that for you. Oh, that's my specialty. I can get that to you Thursday at three. But then... That's a good yes, right? When you say yes, yes, yes to someone, sure, 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 yeah, 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 I'll get, yeah, 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 oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That is uh, how you set yourself up to disappoint someone, right? And maybe you misunderstood what they're asking for. Maybe they misunderstood what you were promising. Maybe you said yes, but then you lose track of it. You said yes, but now you're juggling. So you're going to drop a ball, either theirs or someone else's, right? So what I always tell people is uh, real influence is a currency that you build over time. It's, it's your reputation. It's, it comes from conducting yourself um, honestly in terms of uh, really trying to make the best decisions about how you interface with other people's needs on a regular basis. And that means, you know, look, it's work. So it's not about, oh, hey, your passion is my passion, whatever. Okay. If that's your hobby or if that's your own business, you can decide to do that. But what it's really about is, you know, you have to understand what are your boss's priorities? What are your boss's ground rules? What are your boss's marching orders? Okay. Then you got to make sure you're supporting your people if anyone reports to you. And then once you got, so the first person you got to manage every day is yourself. The second person you got to manage every day is your boss. The third person you got to manage is anyone who has dinner with their family and call talks about their boss and they, 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 mean, they mean you, right? And then, okay, is there room for anybody? Well, I want to be a go-to person. Okay, well, first, make sure you're taking care of what your boss needs. You're taking care of what your people need. Okay, now, if there's anyone else, sure. Now, make sure you've got limited time. Make sure you're allocating it really intelligently. And this is one one of the reasons I say, you know, you need to also find go-to people all over because that's how you say, oh, Hey, this is probably not the right opportunity for me because it's not my specialty. One thing, I don't know quite what to do. I don't know how long it'll take. I'm not sure when I could do it. Um, you know, but Mr. Blue, 
this could be an opportunity for Mr. Blue to really shine because it is Mr. Blue's specialty. Oh, Ms. Red, she knows just how to do this. And it's also the case that even if, you know, oh, this is my specialty, but gee, you know, I don't have, I could do this for you three months from Thursday. But that's why I say you got to build up go-to people who can back you up. You've got to build up go-to people who you can give them an opportunity to add value. The funny thing is, this: the more you are, the, if you want to be valuable, if you want to get ahead, you've got to add value to others. So you, the way you have to orient yourself to relationships is, sure, you want to bond with people. Okay. You know, I feel your pain, whatever it is. Um, you know, and you, of course, you want to be able to go to people when you need something. But the key to relationships at work is, and, and maybe relationships in life, is approach every relationship in terms of what you can do for them. And that's that power, um, that real influence power. Because, you know, when you talked about the way you deliver maximum value. So, so much, so much great stuff that you had said. I'm trying to sort of summarize all these things as well for listeners. But, you know, to be that go-to person, the challenge that you may have is this overcommitment syndrome because you are a high-performing person and you want to constantly support others, but there's only so much that you can do. And so you have to prioritize where you're going to deliver that maximum value, which requires alignment with what your boss needs, people above you, right? Ensuring you're aligned on that front, make sure you're delivering value there and building the necessary relationships, of course. But you also have to find that alignment with your own team such that what you're doing, ensuring you're creating success for everyone in the most optimal way. And then in doing so, you also need to be mindful of finding other go-to people. These, This is that broader network too, that where you're spotting the trends in what you know that you can deliver optimally, right time, right place, right? Right. But the benefit too is then also identifying who are those other people who could be those people that could deliver for the needs that come your way. So it's not just you taking on all of that, but you being strategic and looking outward and saying, wait, the way that I can deliver maximum value and still be that go-to person doesn't mean I'm the one who does it, but I'm the one who happens to know the right people to be able to do that. So for you as an individual, you are looking up and down and sideways in many instances, but you're you're really trying to be very strategic and prioritizing where do you optimally deliver that value yourself, but then you're also looking broadly and almost having a bench of people in which you know they can deliver value as well. And so you are this broader team, essentially. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's right. And you know. What I always say to people is you got to, people are, are too concerned with, you know, uh, saying yes to please. And they think that's how you get influence with other people. It's a quid pro quo, right? And, you know, I better say yes or else you might be mean to me later or you won't like me or whatever it is, right? But what actually 
ends up happening is that then you get overburdened. So you're juggling, you get overcommitted, and then you end up saying no, also not really for the best reason. It's because you haven't managed your time well, you haven't managed your commitments well, and now you're drowning in overcommitment. So you have to say no, right? It's much better to say no for good reasons at the right time, not because you're drowning in overcommitment. And what you're looking for are the right yeses. And, and the trick I find is pay attention to other people's needs. And when you have a need, slow down and make sure you're asking in the right way. You're asking the right person in the right way at the right time. We don't pay enough attention to defining the need and, and, and defining the ask. What is this person really asking me for? And even if it's an indic- if this is an instance in which you need to say no, think about the difference between saying, oh, no, no, I can't take on one more thing, you know, and saying, hmm, tell me more about that. Oh, tell me more about that. Hmm, okay. And uh, let me ask a good question about that. Let me ask another good question about that. Oh, so do you mean this? Hmm. Okay. So it's similar to something I know how to do, but hmm, sounds more like this. Hmm. Okay. So, hey, do you have an example of something like that? Hmm. Okay. So now you've just made that conversation much longer, but you're paying attention, you're taking notes, and you're giving respect to this person's need. That power of inquiry. I mean, the way everything you said, it's really, if you think about your ability to connect with someone and ultimately create that real influence, it is this power of inquiry and getting to the root cause or or the root issue that uh, or the root challenge, whatever it may be. (laughs) But what are they looking for your help with? Because in the end, you might not be the right person, but you have to take a step back and do your own analysis in helping the other person who's coming to you to guide them accordingly. And it's because of this some degree rigor, right? In your line of questioning. It's just, it's due diligence. What I always say is help people help you help them. Let me help you help me help you, right? It's, I need your help. And by the way, sometimes what you see is, Oh, that's not my specialty, but that sounds like something new. I could make a new specialty. Oh, I'd love to get a chance to do this thing that's not already my specialty. I'd like to add that to my repertoire. But then you've got to be very, very clear. Hey, that's not my specialty, but I'm game for this assignment. But let me just be clear. I'm going to have to go do a little learning about this. Maybe you can help me learn about this. And then let me, you know, let me do some learning and then I'll come back to you and tell you what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it, when I'm going to do it, when it's going to get done. What I always tell people is if you are not ready to say, this is exactly what I'm going to do. It's exactly how I'm going to do it. It's exactly when I'm going to do it and exactly when I'm going to get it done. You are not ready to say yes. And there's too many sloppy yeses. And what ends up happening is Think of it this way. Somebody comes to you for something and you say yes. Now they're relying on you. If you don't deliver for them, then see that damages the relationship. Even by the way, if you're best buddies, 
But if they come to you and they're depending on you and you don't deliver for them, this is how they feed their family. Remember, this is their career. So if they're relying on you and you fail to deliver for them, that is how you damage a relationship. Much better to say no up front or not yet up front or I'm not sure up front. That is so important, I think, for people to recognize because we I think many want to be pleasers, right? You feel you deliver value when you can address someone's need, but sometimes the most important thing to do and the best way to address their need is to your point in saying no, because what you have to do is understand that domino effect that could happen if you're not in that position to really effectively address what they have as a challenge. You know, I want to actually talk about one other concept too. Um, in your book, you had you talked about this concept of taking a continuous improvement approach to your number one asset, which is people. Right. And of course, I completely agree with that, right? Because, you know, it's something that's not quite often as fully embraced. And as we talked about earlier, the pandemic has helped people realize that they need to take more control of themselves, that they're valuable, um, that I think it's shine that greater light, that we have to be more human in nature. But given everything that you've done, I'd love to get your perspective. How do you help companies start to shift that behavior from seeing people as you know the human capital, not as this valuable asset that you have to cultivate and celebrate? Because, you know, that go-to person, if we tie this to your book, and that go-to person who's the indispensable person who powers your business, who enables you to reach those goals is not who you want to lose. But yet we see a lot of chatter out there and um, great resignation, quiet quitting, right? It, you see things that are just counter to really valuing people. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, look, uh, everywhere I go, and this is true in just about every industry, uh, you know, if you ask people, hey, are people your number one asset? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, people are our number one asset. I mean, you probably say that a lot. Oh, yeah, people are our number one asset. Oh, well, what's your approach to managing them? Well, what do you mean? They're people. We're, we're just winging it. Right. And then you say, well, hmm. Uh, well, isn't HR helping you? Oh, yes. They make us do a bunch of difficult paperwork. If ever I need help from HR, they tell me, oh, have you been documenting performance? I mean, come on. That's an outrage. But imagine if you were asking the accountants about the money and you say, oh, well, you have to document that. You have to keep track of that. You know, you'll have to keep track of your money in the general ledger system. Imagine if you had an accountant who said, oh, no, no, I keep it all up here. See? I mean, after all, yes, money's important, but I've got my own style for dealing with the money. Everyone thinks it's okay to have their own style for dealing with people. But instead, what you should do is take this world of metrics seriously and take notice of the evidence about what works with people. What works with people uh, is uh, tuning into their needs. And uh, uh, and realizing that you have to make expectations clear, that you have to set people up for success, that you have to uh, have real dialogue, that you have to listen and respond, that things change over time. So when we talk about continuous improvement, 
when it comes to relationships, what I'm talking about is, okay, hey, after every working interaction, we should reconnoiter and we should say, hey, what went well? Uh, let's continue that. Uh, what uh, went okay? Right. Let's continue that. Is there any way we can fine tune it? And what went wrong here? How can we make sure that it doesn't go wrong next time? Right. And and so, by the way, in the United States Armed Forces, they call this an after action review. Right. And and it, or if you were thinking of a, a sports team, you know, it would be after every play. Hey, oh, you know, be careful. You know, you got to do this better. You got to do that better. If you're in practice, especially right, you're playing a scrimmage game or something. You know, you you you're, you're trying to improve, right? All, all continuous improvement is is uh, solving one small problem after another and making sure that the things that are going right, we draw a bright line under and do them intentionally again, right? And so, if we do that with our work, if we do that with our processes, that's good. We should also do that with our dialogues with our boss, with our dialogues, with our direct reports, with our dialogues, with our colleagues, with our dialogues, with our vendors, with our customers, you should be in dialogue and be trying to keep getting better at how you're working together. And when you think about tying that continuous improvement, because I want to tie that back to being that go-to person, being somebody who's indispensable, the whole process too is a continuous improvement for you as the individual to learn how to say yes, <laughs> what or when to say yes, when to say no, understanding those different dynamics, all those elements of real influence. But this is where you become much more impactful in what you do. And then I think people will then recognize um, how that you you are this really indispensable person. Yeah. And Connie, just think of this. What's the alternative? The alternative is you're in a hurry. You're in a hurry. You don't slow down for the dialogue. You don't slow down to tune into the ask. You don't slow down to make sure your yeses are good. Then what happens is when things go wrong, people point fingers. And that is bad news. Yes. And what's so important, because you've been so good at constantly um connecting all those dots of one particular action that you may take and then subsequently the domino effect that will happen in terms of how people will react and behave um, and feel successful or not. Um, I think that's just really important to think about because many operate in that moment and think, well, if I do this, then that. But what's been so helpful is for you to share just kind of that broader sphere of influence in those dynamics that happen so that you really start to think about, well, let me take a step back. Let me do that necessary inquiry so that we can have the dialogue, which then can help illuminate the right path forward. So you're taking a much more strategic approach to really navigating things that are much more uncertain in these days. So I would so appreciate that. And so to close, I'd love to ask, what would you say your definition of success is today? And how has it evolved from when you started your journey? For me, what I always tell young people, and I was young once, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what I always tell young people is, 
what you should be doing when you're young is trying to make as many of the right moves as you can and do as much of the heavy lifting as you can so that you have more options in the future. And to me, one way to think about success, I mean, for me, uh, time is my frenemy, you know? So, um, you know, I try to make very good use of time, but I'm very angry with Kronos because the time elapses and it goes away. Uh, and, you know, and then I think, did I optimize that time? You know, so uh, I think, you know, make good use of your time so you create more options for yourself in, the, in, in you know, one moment at a time. Try to create more options for yourself. Such sage advice. And I think that would resonate so much too with those who are entering the workforce or growing in the workforce, because I believe that people are looking for that optionality and honestly have that level of optionality now. And they want to explore more of this breadth of their skills and talents versus being quite narrowly focused. Because in the end of the day, we all want to really be our whole selves. And that's not just one thing. Well said. What's the best work or career advice you've ever received? Well, I'll tell you something that I love, which was uh, uh, told to me by a longtime client, a really interesting guy. But uh, he he always says, you know, uh, you should just start right now, practice being the person you're trying to become. Practice being the person you're trying to, to become. It's like dressing for success, I guess, but with conduct, (laughs) you know, it's with conduct, the intentionality, like you talked about, Yeah, you got to take care of yourself um, and you got to use your time really wisely and conduct yourself properly. That's that, you know, it's the basics. It's take my advice, take a walk every day, eat your vegetables, get a good night's sleep. (laughs) That's my advice. Getting back to basics, basically, which I think that's so much of what you've even shared in this amazing conversation. And finally, what's the best way listeners can connect with you and also get your book? Rainmakerthinking.com is the best place to find me. And our books are available wherever books are sold. So (laughs) I will tell you that the one you focused on today, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, um, is um, uh, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And when they decided to publish this book. I felt like I was all grown up. Harvard is publishing my book. I'm all grown up now. So, (laughs) you know, Amazon, you can get the books anywhere books, anywhere books are sold. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and helping us better understand how to be that go-to person. What does it take? How to focus on, you know, the right thing, when, where, how, all of those things, which is so important to create that real influence, to really establish yourself as someone where, again, in this uncertain world, we want to know that we are delivering maximum value. And that is so important. So thank you so much for sharing all that wonderful wisdom. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thanks for uh, doing such a great interview. Uh, it's it's so nice uh, when somebody actually seems to read and appreciate the book. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much. This new world of work is more flexible, but that also means it's less predictable. You can't take for granted that people will be co-located. Workers are navigating constantly shifting priorities and lines of authority. 
So we have to adapt the ways we work with and influence other people, which ultimately comes down to practicing new soft skills that will help you nurture individual connections. The art of being indispensable at work argues that the way you truly create influence in the workplace is by becoming a go-to person. You've probably worked with one, the kind of person who you knew you could go to with a tricky problem or an internal disagreement. Go-toism begins with committing to adding maximum value. And the way you treat people, solve problems, make commitments, it's the consistency of your behaviors and actions that demonstrate that you take people's needs seriously and are intentional about addressing them. Serving others makes you indispensable. An easy trap to fall into here is conflating adding maximum value with saying yes to everything. They aren't the same thing. It's really easy to end up overcommitting yourself when you're genuinely trying to help. The trick is to understand when and where you can actually add value. And sometimes that means knowing when someone else is better suited to solve a problem. And if you can fill your own network with people like this, the problems you can solve and the influence you can have on the world just starts to magnify. Hi, everyone. Thanks as always for listening. I'm excited to be sharing the news that I just released a brand new personal development tool for people like you. The work and career success assessment is meant to help passionate workers understand the key levers of success when it comes to their career, identify their professional strengths, and uncover personalized areas for improvement. It's backed by data from my annual state of work and career success study, and it takes most people less than five minutes to complete. At the end of the assessment, you'll get a numerical score that shows how you stack up against the average American worker and where you should focus your energy to get ahead. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to helping you create the necessary momentum in your work and life so you can continue to build the business of you.